Welcome to Welcome to Florida. I'm your hostess, Hallie Reed. Now, the thing I love about the state of Florida is that no matter how much of its history that I study, it never fails to make me go, what the fuck? Which is why the initials of Welcome to Florida are WTF. On WTF, I want to cover both the quote-unquote classics as well as the lesser-known cases that should be well-known because they're so goddamn crazy. Now, I wanted to start out with a trashy Palm Beach murder, and it turns out this case is the Palm Beach murder, or at least the book I based most of this episode on is titled The Palm Beach Murder by Marion Collins. Anyway, I'll get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, the story of James Sullivan. James Sullivan Jr. was born to a working-class Catholic family in Boston, which is exactly what you imagine. His father, James Sr., was a typesetter for the Boston Globe, and his mother was a homemaker. Jim was ambitious, and he attended a prestigious Catholic high school. At 16, he met his future first wife, Catherine, who everyone called Cappy, at a church service where his uncle Edward was a parish priest and Jim was an altar boy. Cappy found him very charming, and they had your typical teenage romance. Jim got a scholarship to the prestigious Jesuit College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, and Cappy studied to be a nurse. Later, a friend named Ann Mulligan said, My best friend was Cappy's older sister, Joyce, and Cappy was a couple of years behind me in college. She was a very bright girl, but Jim, he was a guy I was never fond of. He was like Eddie Haskell in Leave it to Beaver. Very personable and nice, but he's always rubbing you the wrong way. Jim graduated in 1962 with a degree in economics, but quickly found that he had a hard time finding a job. Eventually, he found a position at the accounting firm Pete Marwick, which gave him a steady but very boring employment. In 1965, he and Cappy got married and settled into domestic life. They had kids and lived a steady Boston Catholic middle-class life. Jim, however, was still ambitious, bored, and unsettled. Things changed dramatically in 1974, when Jim's rich uncle, Frank Beanert, made him an offer. Frank owned Crown Beverages Incorporated, which distributed Seagram's Liquor in Bacon, Georgia. He was married but had no kids and he wanted to retire. He wanted to pass the firm on to the family and his bright young nephew seemed like the perfect heir. Jim would sort of take over and do a test drive for a few years while Uncle Frank took it easy and if it went well, Frank would give the whole company to him. Now, Macon's kind of a small city. It's smack in the middle of Georgia, not very far from Atlanta. After a quick Google, I couldn't find the 1974 population, but the 2019 population was about 153,000, and I honestly don't think it would have changed a whole lot in between then. Either way, it remained either a smallish city or a large town. This actually has a pretty interesting history if you're into history, but if you're moving there from Boston, it's obviously going to be a big change. Cappy was very unhappy about the mood, but did it because the job and the money were too good to pass up. Jim showed up as the new guy in charge and immediately started acting like a huge asshole. The Palm Beach murder says his aggressively ambitious nephew made it plain that he had scant respect for the way the company was run. Worst, as a designated owner, he ran roughshod over the longtime employees who had bitterly resented the interloper from the north. He may have had the same accent and the same easy Irish charm as the legendary Kennedys, but the Bostonian had a nasty side which he unleashed increasingly often on the help. He treated them like dim-witted southern hicks, and unsurprisingly, many of them grew to loathe him. Cappy, too, was miserable. She missed Boston and suspected Jim was cheating on her. Now, apparently, Frank had come to dislike Jim in this time, too, and was planning on letting him go from the company, which 
it really takes a lot because not only is this guy family, he is pretty much the only apparent heir. The Sullivans went back to Boston for Christmas and allegedly Frank had plans to break off the deal with Jim when he got back. But then on January 3rd, the day Jim returned to Macon, Frank collapsed in a downtown warehouse overcome with painful stomach cramps. He lay there for hours until he was found by a couple of workmen who were closing up for the day. Now, believe it or not, instead of taking him to the hospital, they brought him home. This is probably because his wife, Agnes, was a committed Christian scientist who believed that only God could cure him. All right. I haven't, I really haven't known a whole lot of Christian scientists, but I've read some stuff. And from the stuff I've read, most Christian scientists will tell you that you rely on God for like a cold or a minor illness. And obviously, if you're sick, you still rely on God. But when you need to go to the hospital, you go to the fucking hospital. You rely on God, but go to the fucking hospital. So I guess some people take it way more seriously than others. Either way, Frank spent the night at the hospital, racked with pain and nausea and vomiting uncontrollably. Eventually, Frank decided he couldn't take it anymore and called an ambulance. He got to the hospital and a few hours later died at the age of 65. Now, the fact that this was an unbelievably lucky turn of events for Jim did not go unnoticed. He insisted that there would be no investigation into the death, even though his uncle was only 65 and had always been healthy. There was no autopsy, so there was no official cause of death, and Jim moved really quickly to have the remains buried. Of course, people came forward saying that Jim knew he was going to be fired and were making allegations that Jim was behind the sudden death. Personally, if Jim had been in Boston a few weeks before and he was busy flying in when Frank collapsed, I don't see how he could have poisoned Frank without hiring a second person. And as far as I can tell, no potential second person poisoner was ever identified. In 2005, the remains were disinterred and given an official autopsy, but officially no signs of foul play or poison were ever found. Given this was after the body had been in the ground for 30 years, I'm sure evidence could have disappeared, but I'm generally more inclined to think that this was just an incredible stroke of luck for Jim, because incredible strokes of good luck all just always seem to happen to privileged assholes like that. He inherited the business, and upon the death of his aunt Agnes, he would inherit their 12-acre estate. Immediately after all this happened, Cappy went back to Boston and filed for divorce. Here, Jim started his pattern of being an incredibly petty tight ass and hired a good lawyer so he could give Cappy and the kids as little money as possible, in spite of everything he just inherited. Her husband had just inherited millions, but all Cappy got out of the divorce was $10,293, a three-year-old station wagon in custody of the kids. Jim did all this by claiming even though he was the head of a multi-million dollar business, he only made $24,000 a year. He was ordered to pay $1,000 a month in child support and then, quote, told Catherine she'd better pull Deidre out of private school because he had no intention of, intention of paying the bill. What a great dad. Of course, this is the 70s and Cappy is an unemployed housewife with no outside income besides what her husband gives her. She could have told the judge that her husband was lying about his income and put up more of a fight, but for some reason she didn't. Honestly, I don't find this unreasonable. It looked like the he looked like he just killed his uncle. He clearly didn't give a fuck about Cappy or the kids, and she was probably afraid of him, which, seeing what happened later, she had every reason to be. Now, Jim didn't stay single for very long. During the divorce process, he met a young woman, and young as in 11 years younger than him, by the name of Lita LaVon McClinton. Lita came from Atlanta's wealthy, politically connected Black elite at a time when it was good to be rich and Black in the South. 
Her father, Emery, was a high-ranking official in the U.S. Department of Transportation, and her mother, Joanne, was a state representative. This is immediately after the civil rights movement when black people are making huge inroads into positions of power, and also when the New South economic boom is bringing, bringing enormous economic and population growth to Atlanta. Lita grew up with every imaginable privilege. She attended elite private schools and dance cotillion. She attended Spelman College and made the dean's list, graduating with a degree in political science. Lita's real, real passion was for fashion, and she set out to make a career for herself. She found a job as an assistant buyer in an upscale, upscale boutique at the Lenox Square Mall. This is where she met Jim. She was immediately struck by his easy charm and said yes when he asked her on a date. Things went well, and Lita introduced Jim to her parents. Joanne and Emery hated him immediately. They thought he was too old for her, and besides that, it was clear to them that he was a self-centered asshole. There was also the issue that he was they were an interracial couple in Georgia, and it could potentially be very dangerous for both of them. In spite of all this, Lita continued the romance, and Jim did everything he could to charm her and flaunt his wealth. Eventually, the couple became engaged. Emery put his foot down and fought to stop the engagement, but a week later, Joanne convinced him that Lita was an adult and intelligent enough to make her own decisions, and saying no would only make her unhappy. Lita gave the previously slobby Jim a debonair makeover, showing him how to style his hair and choose suits that fit him well. She picked out a dress for herself and quit her job so she could be with Jim whenever he needed. Joanne and Emery made peace with the fact that Jim was going to be their son-in-law. But then, the night before the wedding, Jim decided that this was the right time to tell his future in-laws that he had four kids and no, they were not invited to the ceremony. Joanne and Emery previously knew that he was divorced, but they didn't know about the kids or how shittily he treated them afterwards. Everyone was calling on Lita to call off the marriage, but she refused. On December 29, 1976, they got married on the estate that Jim had inherited from his uncle. Just hours before the ceremony, Lita was asked to sign a prenup that said she was to claim no assets she'd amassed before their marriage. Lita signed everything and went forward. Later, Joanne would say, The wedding was one of the most miserable and disappointing days of my life. I tried not to show it. Emery and I went through the act. Later, I found a photograph of myself sitting by a window looking so dejected, so bad, that I tore it up. I saw all the pain on my face, and I just couldn't keep it. The Sullivans didn't immediately settle into domestic bliss. Jim told Lita to stay in Atlanta while he worked in Macon. Lita got another job as, as an assistant fur buyer at a high-end department store and would drive to Macon on the weekends. Jim used the separation to cheat and carry on just like he always had, and for several months didn't tell the employees that he was married. In 1977, Lita convinced Jim to buy a big house in an upscale naked neighborhood of Shirley Hill. This is where Lita's reasons for burying Jim kind of come out. The Palm Beach murder describes, It was an impressive starter home with columns straddling the front door, 15 acres of woodland, and a swimming pool. She had exquisite taste and settled for nothing but the best. Their guests, mostly friends of Lita's from Atlanta, gathered around a table growing with Wedgwood china and Baccarat crystal. Vases of freshly cut flowers brightened every room. You know, I, I get it. A lot of women would be willing to settle for marrying an asshole if it means you get a life of luxury in return. It's pretty decent trade-off, but you have to recognize the situation for what it is. The thing is, Lita seemed to be really in love with Jim, which causes a lot of problems for her later. 
As time went on, Jim's ultra stinginess started to come through. He put Lita on a strict allowance of only $50 a week, which is supposed to not only cover household expenses, but also eating out, going to the salon, clothes, and entertaining. When it came to himself, he was much stingier. An employee later said, he wouldn't spend money on clothes. We were always on him about it. He'd wear dress pants and a dingy shirt around the office. And if we were at, if we had a meeting, he'd wear a suit. But all of his suits were really old. He had a maid, Minnie Lou, who worked for him at the home and at the office. She told her he made her saved used paper towels. Ew. Every time he brought Lita a piece of jewelry, he wouldn't let her keep it. He'd put it in a vault in the basement, and she only got to put it on when he wanted her to wear it. He even refused to turn on the air conditioning in his office in the middle of a Georgia summer, which is just sadistic. During this time, he cheated on Lita without making any moves to hide it. He'd even take her car to visit his girlfriends, come back, and tell her she was out of gas. Lita went to her parents, saying she'd found a long, blonde hair in her sink. Naturally, Jim started wanting more than life and Macon offered him. His job brought in a steady income that would, over time, become a level of wealth that, honestly, most people would be very happy with. But it still came in slow bits and pieces, and he wanted everything now. If he sold the company, he could immediately get access to millions of dollars, and his finances were stretched pretty tight. He started looking at property in Palm Beach and then settled on one house in particular. The house at 920 South Ocean Avenue in Palm Beach is known as the Ham and Cheese House because of its striped facade of brick and yellow coral. Officially, the oceanfront 18-room Art Deco Mediterranean mansion is called Casa Aleda. It's a goddamn monstrosity from the 1920s land boom that brought in a wave of jazz age nouveau riche to Florida. It was built to be extravagant and flaunt wealth in the most Palm Beach way possible. Today is lovingly preserved and on the historic registry. In 1981, it was co-owned by a Kentucky businessman and his ex-wife, who must have been looking to unload the house after a divorce. Through an incredibly complicated process that involved literally buying the house piece by piece, Jim agreed to buy the house for close to $2 million, but only ended up paying $980,000 for it. He made the down payment by loaning himself $713,000 from the Crown Beverage Employee Pension Funds. This is Jim's greatest talent. Through financial tricks and absurd levels of stinginess and often flat out screwing over a bunch of people, he is able to give the impression of being incredibly wealthy without actually being incredibly wealthy. In the time after Costa Aleda had been purchased but Lita hadn't moved in, Jim was able to carry on cheating on her. That December, his mistress actually sent a Christmas card to the home where Lita lived, saying, Missing your kisses at Christmas. Immediately, Lita went to the mistress's house and made her confess to having an affair with Jim. Then, she went back to her home, took all her clothes and all the items she could fit in her car, and went back to with her parents. Jim was actually the one who served Lita with divorce papers, which was a move that was mostly centered on him getting all of his stuff back. They went back and forth for nearly a month, but they soon got tired of it. Jim begged Lita not to go through with it, and she told him that there had to be some major changes. Jim set to reinvent himself as a high society man in Palm Beach with his fancy new house. Part of the reason Jim was able to get it so cheap was that it was a fixer-upper condition, you know, not in really good condition. So Lita immediately had to fix everything. 
While she had, while Lita had plenty of upper class black society friends to mingle with in Atlanta, Palm Beach was white, white, white. If you're wondering what level of racist motherfucker we are dealing with, this is the congressional district that electric that elected Matt Gates. This is where Mar-a-Lago is. It's that kind of racist. Happy to have black and brown people of guard as gardeners and maids, but not so much as friends. So Lita was an outcast. In spite of this, the Sullivans tried to make their own social life. They invited friends from Georgia and Jim's many business acquaintances and spent evenings smoking cigars and drinking 60-year-old wine. Neither of them had jobs. When their friends would go home, Lita tried to combat her loneliness by doing volunteer work and didn't make up but it didn't make up for the lack of a real social life. So she frequently returned to Atlanta, which made Jim happy because he could fuck as many women as he wanted without while she was away. Soon, Lita talked to Jim into buying her a townhome in Atlanta in the upscale Buckhaven area. Without his wife in tow, Jim had a much better time fitting in with the Palm Beach natives. Lita would go back and forth between Palm Beach and Atlanta, and Jim lived a, the full Palm Beach socialite life playing tennis, attending art openings, hosting fundraisers. Lita enjoyed her life in Atlanta, is probably better off with her husband completely out of the picture, but she was still financially very dependent on him. Her $15,000 a year allowance was extremely tight, and Jim refused to give her a penny extra. At Casa Aleda, Lita was living in a, with an enormous 18-room mansion with no hired staff to clean it. Now, when you live in a house that big, a housekeeping staff isn't just a luxury, it's a necessity, because otherwise you'll spend your whole time time cleaning, which seems to be what Lita was doing. At this point, Jim was so fucking stingy that he was wearing the underwear that he inherited from his uncle, which his uncle had gotten from the army which he, when he was serving in World War II. I don't care how big and fancy your house is and how beautiful your sports cars are. I'm willing to live in a three bed, two bath in the suburbs if it means I don't have to scrub the ballroom floor and I can buy myself a six pack of cotton briefs once a year. And while Lita was struggling to stretch her thin finances, Jim had no problems dropping big luxury gifts on the women he was dating. Lita found bras in her bed and had to stand back and watch while Jim openly flirted with other women at society functions they went to and while the other guests ignored her. By 1985, Lita was in her 30s and fed up. She'd heard gossip that Jim was fucking the wife of one of his friends. So Lita decided to leave Palm Beach for good. She went back to Atlanta, cleaned out their checking account, and filed for divorce. Jim cut off the power to her townhome and stopped paying for insurance on her Mercedes. Lita didn't want much. Jim could have Casa Aleda. She just wanted to have the Atlanta townhome. Town some alimony plus medical, dental, and life insurance for the rest of her life. Actually, a pretty reasonable divorce settlement. Things get pretty complicated legally here. There was a lot of back and forth and trying and blocking, but eventually Lita was granted 7000 a month. And after this major victory in Jim's outright dickness, her lawyers sought to throw out the post-nup agreement and wanted a 50-50 split of everything he owned. At this point, Jim had set his sights on his next wife. He had indeed been fucking one of his friend's wife. Her name was Suki Rogers, born Hyosuk Choi in Korea. She was petite, smoking hot, and had her pick of gross old rich men with Asian fetishes. She settled for a millionaire investment consultant named Leonard Rogers. She lived the life of a Palm Beach 
trophy wife, but soon got kind of bored with Leonard, who left her alone to work all the time. Suki met Jim at a party, and soon they were having an affair, and they did nothing to hide it. Leonard learned pretty quickly what was going on, and the two had a pretty nasty divorce that ended with Suki still coming out with a good amount of money. Focusing on his own divorce, Lita's lawyers were asking for the Buckhead townhome worth $600,000, the furnishings worth $200,000, $100,000 in jewelry, $200,000 in cash, and a car worth $18,000, which is actually a pretty reasonable divorce settlement in that Lita could have a good chance of getting. It was a full quarter of Jim's wealth. He was just barely rich to begin with, and this was enough to make him officially not rich anymore. Lita was living a good life in Atlanta. She had her beautiful, richly decorated townhome, her family and friends, and a closet full of beautiful dresses. She did charity work, hosted fun fundraisers, even tried dating a bit. In Palm Beach, Jim had a $735,000 mortgage payment due, along with $49,000 in interest, which he was unable to pay. He was $900,000 in debt and had no way of paying it because Florida law required a husband's wife's signatures on marital properties. This meant that if Jim couldn't pay her alimony, Lita would have the power to sell Casa Aleda. The divorce hearing was set for January 16, 1987. That morning, neighbor Bob Christensen was taking out his, garage, his garbage when he noticed a tall, balding, middle-aged man walking across Lita's front lawn with a bu box of roses. He thought that the man was odd and that it was too early to be, de to be delivering flowers. He got a good look at the man before returning to his garage to wait for his wife to come down so she could he could drive them both to work. He heard Lita say out of an upstairs window, hold on, I'll be right down. Then he heard three shots. Bob ran out of the garage and saw the de delivery man running out of the development. Bob went into Lita's front door and he saw her lying in her nightgown covered in blood. He called 911 and stayed with Lita until the ambulance arrived. Upstairs, Lita's best friend, Poppy Marable, was hiding in the closet. She was the one who called Lita's parents and told them that she'd been shot. Emery and Joanne hurried to Lita's home and then to the hospital. There, a doctor told them that Lita was dead. Right away, Emery said it was that son of a bitch, Jim Sullivan. That night, Jim took Suki out for a date at a fancy French bistro. They had champagne and caviar. Now, to anyone with a goddamn ounce of common sense, it was obvious that Jim Sullivan had hired a hitman to, hurt, to murder Lita Sullivan. Finding conclusive evidence, however, proved to be pretty hard to do. Eyewitnesses gave consistent descriptions of a tall, middle-aged man who definitely wasn't Jim. And Jim had a pretty solid alibi. He was in Palm Beach at the time. A month later, when write-ups of the killing were published in the Atlantic Constitution and the Palm Beach Post, police declared they had no persons of interest. Atlanta Police Lieutenant Horace Walker said everyone who was involved with her is a suspect at this point. During the days of the divorce, Jim had tried slandering Lita and making accusations about her character. He'd called her a greeter adulterer, which was untrue, and when she was alive, Lita could defend herself. Then, Jim accused her of serious drug abuse. Here's the fact. It was Palm Beach in the 80s. Hookers and blow are its official pastime. Everyone was doing copious amounts of cocaine. And Lita would sometimes indulge. 
Never a lot and not very often, but it was enough for Jim to call her a raging drug addict and racism took it all over from there. After her death, when she could no longer defend herself, Jim really kicked into high gear. He accused her, without evidence, of having affairs and of buying, quote, hundreds of dollars worth of white powder. He accused her of stealing from him and able to pay for her habit. It implied that her drug use was the cause of all of his financial problems and not the fact that he was spending way more money than he had. He blamed her on the death and on he blamed her death on drug dealers. Then he accused her grieving parents of having taken out a life insurance, a life insurance pol policy that had Lita kill. In spite of the scandal, Jim kept on being Jim. He still had his close political friends and supporters. That September, he married Sookie and lavished her with expensive gifts while he drove while she drove around in Lita's silver Mercedes. A year after that, he was appointed the chairman of the Landmarks Preservation Commission. He kept his friends close to him, and his friends didn't believe he was capable of murder. In the Palm Beach murder, an anonymous neighbor said, I did like Jim. He was always very nice to me. I don't have any gripe with him at all. He loved dogs, and anyone who loved dogs was fine with me. To which I have to say, Hitler loved dogs. Anyway, it seemed, at least for a short while, that Jim had gotten away with murder. In spite of everything, sometimes karma does get back at people. In 1983, a man named George Bischel started a business where he claimed he would be growing orchids and dwarf, dwarf palm trees. Jim had invested a million dollars in it. Instead of investing the money in the orchids and palm trees like he promised, George Bissell took the investor's money and then made mortgage payments on his house. It was a huge Ponzi scheme and everyone who invested in it lost all their money, including Jim. In 1989, Bissell was charged with 57 felony counts of racketeering, securities fraud, and the sale of unregulated securities. Jim Sullivan was officially wrecked. Also in 1989, Jim lost his driver's license for a period of five years after he'd amassed 18 violations in six years. With his finances once again under dire threat, Jim started scraping out his kids' trust funds. Now that Jim was poor, Sookie lost interest in him. He stopped showering her with gifts and began placing the same ridiculous money restraints on her that he had placed on Lita. He wouldn't even let me flush the toilet because it uses too much water, Sookie said at one point. In April of 1990, a federal grand jury began hearing witnesses about a possible interstate murder conspiracy. They heard testimony from a florist who sold the flowers, the eyewitnesses who overheard the murder, and a Buckhead resident who nearly hit a man running out of latest development right after the murder. They all gave consistent testimony of a tall, balding, middle-aged man who bought the flowers and then shot Lita. Telephone records from Jim's home showed that he'd received a collect call from a truck stop in Swanee 40 minutes after Lita's murder. But they couldn't identify the gunman and no murder weapon was found, so the Fulton County DA decided not to indict him. In June, Suki filed for divorce. She said, My husband follows me about, watches my every mood, and makes me account to him every moment of my time. He calls me foul names. A year ago, he told me I was dealing with a dangerous person and that I had better watch out. He throws things at me. His previous wife was murdered in Atlanta. His behavior is so aberrant and threatening to me. Although he has not hit me, hurt, hurt me physically, he has left me in a highly nervous state and very scared. 
The divorce was ugly. Suki initially asked for $9,459 a month in alimony, which Jim fought. He claimed to love her and asked to undergo marriage counseling. A videotaped inventory of Casa Aleda was made. Suki got a restraining order and Jim asked the judge to have her banished from Palm Beach, like straight up banishment. She was allowed to stay. After that came a fight over who was responsible for legal expenses after Suki claimed that she had taken the blame for a three-car accident that Jim had caused. She testified under oath that she had been the one at the wheel, even though all the other drivers said that Jim was the only one in the car. Suki ended up being arrested in charge of perjury, but she got out on a $10,000 bond. The divorce trial was a fucking shit show, but a very entertaining one. Suki dropped the he killed his wife bombshell. He called her a, quote, black widow of divorce and actually bought into court 187 pairs of pantyhose, 17 pairs of shoes, boxes of Clinique cosmetics, a two foot high mountain of knitting yarn, bottles of Chanel and Cartier perfume and the flasson of Dior poison. Jim gave a weepy testimony claiming to be a deceived man who truly loved his wife, but she was only interested in his money. Because he had so much more going for him, of course. When she said that he'd spent $800 a month on clothes, a lady in the audience sniffed, oh, that's not very much at all. Just in case you forgot how fucking Palm Beach all of this is. When asked about Lita, Jim, who previously called her a whore, a gold digger, and a coke fiend, said, I think everything Lita does, she does beautiful. She was my whole life. When it came to the fact that Suki's name had been put on the deed to Casa Aleda two months before Lita's death, Suki's lawyer flat, asked, flat out asked Jim if he'd planned on killing Lita, and Jim pled the fifth. Suki said that because of her limited knowledge of English, she'd just signed whatever Jim put in front of her without understanding any of it. After that, the trials took a six-week hiatus. The trial had become such a circus at this point that a bunch of seniors from a nearby retirement home had loaded onto a bus to attend. People were bringing their own lunches so they could stay throughout the whole day. The judge had to turn down a request from a teacher asking for her class to attend. When the trial started back, Jim's lawyer began asking Suki questions about how she'd benefited from Lita's death. Suki made a big show of not understanding the questions and responding in poor English. It culminated with her being asked if she'd been the one who'd hired the hitman, and she denied it. During the break, Suki said in clear English, I think I will sue Weissman. Suki was clearly putting on an act of being an innocent, illiterate immigrant who hardly spoke English. Jim came back and told how Suki had made quite a lot of money on the stock market and regularly read Vogue and Cosmopolitan. After the trial had ended, but before the judge rendered his verdict, Suki and Jim each had their own separate trials. Jim for driving with a suspended license and Suki for perjury. They both pled no contest. Suki got probation and Jim got house arrest, followed by probation. As for the divorce, the judge squarely sided with Jim. Suki was only able to keep the jewelry that she'd been given, and Jim had to pay her $30,000 of her costs, and they had to stay away from each other, but that was it. It seemed like a major victory for Jim, but a seed had been planted. Finally, a credible witness was able to testify that Jim had paid for Lita's murder. Less than a day after the settlement, Jim was arrested on charges of perjury relating to the traffic case. Suki had gone to the police and told them in detail of how she and Jim made a very detailed plan for her to claim that she was the one driving. 
Jim pled no contest and this time was sentenced to one year in jail. It was to occur concurrently with his house arrest and left to the discretion of the Florida Department of Justice, which, in a ridiculous move of white male privilege, agreed to let him serve his jail time in his beachfront mansion. A doctor's note said he was allowed to play tennis as, as it was therapeutic. Even though he was unemployed, he was allowed to leave the house once a day for work. Because of this, investigators were all the more determined to see Jim put away for good. Progress on the case came in fits and starts. Palm Beach Dis Assistant District Attorney Dan Gallo fought for tighter restrictions, and Police Lieutenant James Holland was put in charge of overseeing the house arrest. Jim could swim in his pool, but not throw parties at night. There was to be no alcohol, and he had to wear an ankle monitor. He was only allowed on the ground floor of his house, but he was still allowed to go on business meetings as long as it was between 9 a.m. and 7 p.m., and he had to call before leaving and after arriving at his destination. On September 5th, one of Jim's friends, Martin Marable, agreed to talk to the police in exchange for immunity from prosecution. Martin was an unusual figure in that he had been married to Lita's best friend, Poppy, who had been staying at Lita's townhome at the time of the murder and overheard the whole thing. He was also the man police suspected of being the go-between for Jim and the killers. While Martin stopped short of implicating himself, he handed to police over 40 tapes of conversations between his wife, Poppy, and Lita. Like Jim, Martin was a paranoid asshole who was spying on his wife. At first, Martin told the police that he had initially sold the tapes to Jim for $30,000, but that Jim had returned 35 of the tapes with five of them missing. With this claim, the police were able to obtain a search warrant for Casa Eleda. They searched the home thoroughly and found four guns that Jim wasn't supposed to have under probation. On September 11th, Jim pled not guilty to illegal possession of firearms. He claimed that the guns weren't his and some old friends must have stashed the guns at the house before he was on probation. Of course, this was bullshit. The friends said that he had owned the guns and they'd never owned any. Because of his house arrest, Jim was no longer eligible for bail. He was ordered to carry out the remaining nine months of his one-year sentence in jail. On that same day, there seemed to be a break in the case when a career criminal named Thomas Bruce Henley was charged with being an accomplice to the murder. A jailhouse snitch had told the police that Hen Henley had bragged about taking part in the killing. Henley said that he'd taken part in the killing, but the man who pulled the trigger was another criminal named Clinton Botts. But, Clint but Botts denied having anything to do with the killing. And then Henley's boss came forward and said that Henley was a habitual liar who'd been at work all day on the day of the killing. So the charges were dropped and the case remained open. In prison, Jim was no longer able to maintain the lawn at Casa Eleda, and he was unable to afford a lawn care company to keep it neat. He is facing code enforcement fines from the county. At this point, he had no choice but to sell his beloved Casa Eleda, the house he had committed order, murder in order to keep. He accepted an offer of $3 million, well below his asking price of $4.5 million. When the McClintons heard about this, they sued for the cash to be given to Lita's estate. They had plans on filing a civil wrongful death suit, and the judge ordered the money to go to an escrow account. That December, the McClintons filed their wrongful death suit against Jim and sought to receive damage in excess of $10,000. Finally, on January 10, 1992, a federal grand jury indicted James Fult Sullivan Jr. on the murder-for-hire conspiracy charges. In April, he was released from jail and got an apartment in Boynton Beach. The trial finally got away on, on November 2nd in Atlanta.
Both sides made the same argument. The prosecution said that Jim was a miserable tightwad who murdered his wife when she tried to get him a divorce and take his money. The defense said that she was a cheaty gold digger with a nasty drug habit. At the beginning, eyewitnesses were called in, and together they put together a story of a tall, balding, middle-aged man who had bought flowers, gone to the townhome, shot Leda, escaped, and ended up in a room at a Howard Johnson. Who exactly this man was remained unknown. Phone records show that Jim had received a collect call from outside Atlanta 40 minutes after the murder. Former friends were called in, and they put together an image of Jim as a controlling miser, miser and Lita as stuck in an unhappy marriage. Suki testified that Jim had told her he killed Lita, but her past conviction of perjury and her reputation as a gold digger and a liar were brought up. Pilar Bissell, wife of the guy who stole all of Jim's money, testified of being at Jim's the night before the murder, and that Jim had taken three phone calls. During one of those calls, she heard him distinctly say, get flowers. In the end, the judge made an unusual ruling. He believed Jim was guilty, but dismissed the case. He said that the prosecution simply hadn't provided sufficient evidence to prove beyond reasonable doubt that Jim was the one who'd ordered the killing. A jury would find him not guilty. Jim was free to go, but since the jury still hadn't found him not guilty, he could still be tried again. Thus, he got out of double jeopardy. In the end, Jim got another 18 months of house arrest for his illegal weapons charges. Things seemed to turn around for the better in February 1994, when a civil jury found Jim liable for Lita's death and awarded Lita's estate $3 million for her life, $500,000 for her terror, and $500,000 in punitive damages. Jim moved all of his money into a bank account in Liechtenstein and fought back against the ruling. Eventually, in September of 1995, an appeals court threw out the ruling on the grounds that the Clintons had filed the suit too late. In spite of his seeming victory, Jim had lost a lot. He was exiled from Palm Beach, and his only companion was a small dog that he'd gotten out of the divorce from Suki. He lived in a condo and held no job. Most of all, he was still miserably hung up on Suki and had nothing to do but drink about it. In the Palm Beach murder, a neighbor said, One day, he dropped in on me out of the blue. He sat in my kitchen and cried. He'd had some brandy. There were six or seven people present sitting in my kitchen, and he was crying. He said, I really thought she loved me. I was so positive she loved me. I can't believe that's what happened. While Jim wild in self-pity, the Clintons refused to give up. In 1998, they appeared on the TV show Extra, begging anyone who knew anything to come forward. And this time, someone did come forward. In Texas, a woman named Barbara Trahan saw Jim's picture on TV and recognized him. Ten years earlier, she had been dating a long-distance trucker named Philip Anthony Harwood, or Tony, as she called him. One evening, they pulled into a diner because Tony had to meet someone. The man they met with was Jim Sullivan. They talked about, quote, bumping off Jim's wife, and Jim gave Tony a wad of bills. In the years since, Barbara lived in fear of Tony, but now she knew she had to do the right thing and called the McClinton's lawyer. He brought her to the FBI, who got her to talk over the phone with her ex-boyfriend. In that conversation, she got him to confess to murdering Lita Sullivan. On April 19th, he was arrested and charged with the murder. Five days later, Fulton County investigators indicted Jim Sullivan on murder charges, but when they got went to arrest him, he was gone. He'd fled 
to uh, Costa Rica. Jim brought a new house at the beach resort town of Faro Escondido. It was a good place to live because as a vacation spot, few of the hope homeowners lived there year-round. Jim also seems to have gotten another girlfriend at this time. He met Chongwatana Reynolds, and if I pronounce that wrong, please forgive my whiteness, who he called Nana when he was still living in Palm Beach. At the time, she was married to Palm Beach Community College Athletic Director Howard M. Reynolds. She was still married to Reynolds when she moved to Costa Rica with Jim. At some point, Jim went to Ireland and he was able to get a passport there so he could travel without being caught. Then he and Nana bought a condo in Thailand at the beach resort of Cha'am. In 2002, Jim was featured on America's Most Wanted and his resort neighbors identified him immediately. On, on July 1st, Jim was arrested by the Royal Thai Police. For several months, he languished in a Thai prison while the wheels of justice moved slowly. In Georgia, Tony Harwood agreed to plead guilty to a reduced charge of manslaughter in exchange for testifying against him. He claimed that Clinton Potts was the man who pulled the trigger, but unfortunately, Potts had died a year before. The neighborhood witnessed the shooting, said Harwood was the gunman. Then, Tony named a man named Jar John the bartender, who he'd met through a friend named Tracy the stripper. He said that John the bartender was the man who'd pulled the trigger, even if nobody had ever identified this John the bartender. Whatever, Tony was the one who was convicted. On March 26, 2004, Jim was returned to Atlanta, where he was placed in an isolation cell in Fulton County Prison. The legal process still inched along. First, it had to be established that this that his second trial wasn't double jeopardy. On November 21st, 2005, the Georgia Supreme Court ruled that because Jim had not been officially found guilty, his second trial was still legal. The murder trial finally began on February 27th, 2006. At the trial, Jim's brother, Frank Sullivan, spoke against him, saying, I always knew he was no good. Joanne McClinton spoke of her daughter. I dream of Lita often. She's always at a distance. She's smiling and walking in my direction, and I in hers. But we never reach each other. I awaken chilled, having panic attacks. My husband holds me very tight until I calm down. I ask no specific consideration. I ask you all for not for sympathy. I ask for justice for my daughter's killer. The next day, Jim was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without parole. A wonderful photo from the AP shows Emory McClinton joyfully hugging prosecutor Clint Rucker after the sentencing. Jim would no longer be living his strange, stingy life of luxury. He'd be living in a six by eight foot cell, eating prison food and receiving only an hour of recreation time per day. So that's it for the, our first episode of Welcome to Florida. Was it good? If you want to hear even more WTF stories, maybe with some better recording equipment, please subscribe to our Patreon at WT Florida Podcast. That's W-T-F-L-O-R-I-D-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. All one word. Or just like and subscribe or leave a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Stay strange. Bye.